In John chapter 4, beginning about verse 27, we continue on in the story of this remarkable meeting that Jesus had in an area known as Samaria. Samaria was halfway between Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, in between them was Samaria. And the Samaritans were a people that were despised by most of the Jewish people of the days in which Jesus lived. Nevertheless, Jesus did not do what most devout Jews did at the time when he was traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. In those days, most devout Jews would very consciously avoid the area of Samaria and take a day or sometimes even two out of their way to go a long way around so they wouldn't have to cross through these people and their land that they despised, the Samaritans. But Jesus was different. Jesus went right through the area of Samaria on this particular occasion. As a matter of fact, the Bible text tells us that he needed to go through Samaria. God had an appointed purpose for him to do it. And while he was there, he got into an extended conversation with a woman that he met at a well near the city of Sychar there in Samaria. And that's what we talked about last week. And I don't mean to rehash the whole message from last week, just simply to say that Jesus, though, and you understand this, don't you? That Jesus never broke the commandments of God. Never. He kept the commandments of God perfectly. He fulfilled the commandments of God with his perfect obedience on our behalf. Yet, Jesus almost deliberately and consciously looked for ways to break the traditions, the cultural taboos, and the religious regulations that reigned among men. And so, there were uh, religious... um, uh, commands and cultural taboos against a man or a rabbi, a devout Jew, speaking with a woman in public. Jesus didn't care. He knew that the law of God did not command that against that. So he did it. He got into an extended conversation with this Samaritan woman, and he talked to her about living water. He talked about how he could change the life of a person by entering in. He talked to her about her moral problems in her own individual life, and he then revealed to her that he was the Messiah. That's where we left it off at verse 26. So now we come to verse 27, where we read. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Jesus was left alone at this well with this particular woman because the disciples had gone into the town to get food. They they left Jesus there at the well when he was tired, when he was hungry, and he was thirsty. So when they came back, they expected, well, Jesus, we got you some food. Here's a little to-go bag from some falafel stand there in the city. Here's the food that we brought for you to eat, Jesus. Here it is. Enjoy it. Yet nevertheless, when they come back to that well, they see he's speaking with a woman one-on-one. Oh, my stars, they're about to have a fainting fit at this. But then they understand something, and I love how it's expressed there in those verses. It says, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They knew Jesus well enough, first of all, to know his incorruptible purity. Whatever they said, they said, listen, we know this, there's no funny business going on there. The second thing they knew is this, 
is that they trusted his divine wisdom. They said, if Jesus is talking with a woman one-on-one in a public place, there's a good reason for it. So they didn't question it. They realized, we don't know a lot about this Jesus fellow yet. This is just the beginning of our discipleship with him. But we know this. But when they came, I imagine that it felt awkward for the woman. And so she says, now's a good time for me to go. But look at how she left. Verse 28 tells us, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. Friends, she came to get water. She came to fill up that water pot and to take it back. But she left it behind when she went back into the city. Why? Because number one, she was so captivated by her meeting with Jesus. Number two, she left her water pot there because she was fully intending to come back. And as we're going to find out, she did not intend to come back alone. She intended to come back with people from the village that she came from. By the way, let me say one more thing about that left behind water pot. Isn't that the kind of eyewitness detail that would stick in the mind of somebody who was actually there? As John, the gospel writer, is writing as that, he goes, I was there, I saw this. She left behind her water pot. How crazy is that? She came to the well to get water. She talks with Jesus, and then she goes back into the village, leaving behind her water pot. That impressed him as an eyewitness. Well, anyway, the account goes on. Verse 29, she goes into the village, and this is what she says. Hey, everybody, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, something that we spoke about last week, and I didn't really mention in much detail, was that this woman, and I'll just look to put it diplomatically, she had a complicated moral past. She um, had been married repeatedly and was at the present time involved in a relationship where she was living with a man outside of the blessing or the benefit of marriage. She was known uh, in that village to be somewhat, uh, I don't know if you'd call her a homewrecker. I don't know if you'd call her, do people even use that phrase anymore? Uh, I don't know if you'd call her someone who just had a a bad reputation, but I, I think you understand what I'm getting at. This was her reputation in town. Matter of fact, so much so, that this is why she came out to the well by herself at an unusual hour to get water. Normally, when the women of a village got water, they did it together in a company so they could keep each other company and gossip along the way and just socialize together as women. But she said, no, I'm going to go all alone because the women of that village, they don't want me. And you can imagine how one with that kind of reputation in the village would be excluded by many other people in the village. Now, this is what I think is amazing about this. This woman runs back and says, hey, everybody, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And she doesn't mean every good thing she ever did. She said, I met a man who sees right through me. He sees my sin and failure. And yet I know that he loves me and cares about me. I met a man who knows how messed up I am, but he still loves and accepts me. How crazy is that? Isn't that powerful? Most of us would consciously avoid someone who knew everything we ever did. I'm reminded of a story from, I don't know, 19th century England or something like that where a a, a man played a prank on his literary friends. You know, he had all these friends in literary circles in London. And this is what he did. For five of his friends, he wrote a simple note, and this is what he said. 
He went on and had it delivered by a courier. And the note just simply said this, all is discovered. That's all it said. Everybody who received the note packed their stuff and left town immediately. <laughs> now look, this woman goes to the town and says, my life has been totally laid open by a man who has supernatural knowledge, a prophet of God, and it's okay because I know that he loves me. Matter of fact, she was so impressed by this that she goes back into the village where before she was an outcast. They excluded her. They didn't want to have anything to do with her. Could you imagine all the dirty looks that she would get from the other women in the village all the time? She went back into that village and she said, I met something so good, I want you to meet Jesus as well. In other words, do you see the transformation in her own heart? The, 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 the common reaction when somebody treats us as an outcast is, well, forget you too. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You can die as far as I'm concerned. Her heart is utterly changed and she wants the good presence of Jesus to be real in their life as well. Friends, there was something so good in the way that Jesus treated her, even in the way that he dealt with her moral compromise, even in the way that he dealt with her sin, that she felt utterly safe, utterly secure in having her life laid open bare before him. When I read that, There's something that stirs so deep in my soul that says, Lord, I want it to be that way amongst us. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't, but I want it to be that way more and more. Whatever measure we have that in our midst right now, I want it to be 10 times more. I want our congregation, our community to be a place where somebody could lay bare the sin of their life and feel utterly safe and secure in doing so and not feeling like there'd be a bunch of people around them wagging their finger, I told you so. Well, good, we finally got another sinner, a really wretched one now. Isn't that good? Another brownie point for us. Where they wouldn't be like, oh, good. No, there'd be nothing like that, but that we'd have an environment that is safe and secure for people to repent in the midst of. That I, I could tell them, really, just how bad I really am, and they'd love and accept me in Jesus. Jesus could communicate that to this woman. Isn't it amazing? And when she communicated that to the whole village, come meet a man who knows everything I ever did. Could this man really be the Christ? They said, yes, we want some of that. So verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him. And can you see it? This streaming group of Samaritan people coming out of their village of Sychar to walk that distance out to the well, which was at some distance outside of the city. And they say, yes, we want to meet this man too. If he could see your life and gently confront it and speak to it, but still love you, man, we want to know that kind of man as well. So here they are. Can you just visualize it in your mind? This group of Samaritan people, they're streaming out of the village. We want to meet this man. We want to speak to him as well. And then, if you got that image in your mind, sort of push the pause button upon it. Because starting at verse 31... Jesus is going to deal a little bit with his disciples. It's kind of like a subplot going on in our little story. Now Jesus is going to use this as a teachable moment for his disciples. And what is he going to say to his disciples in this teachable moment? Well, let's pick it up here, verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
friends, there's a lot there. But you get the scene? The woman runs off to tell the villagers. The disciples come up to Jesus at the well. They go, Jesus, send us to get food. Here's some falafel. Get it right here. Good. And Jesus says, notice the words there in verse 32. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now, we get it, don't we? We get that Jesus is speaking by spiritual analogy. He's not saying that he has a falafel tucked into the corner of his robe. He's not saying the food truck and came and visited them while they were away. No, he's using... Food as a spiritual picture here. He's using the satisfaction that comes from eating a good meal to reflect the satisfaction that he has in doing the will of the God in heaven who sent him on his mission. And this is what he says. He says, I have food of which you do not know. The disciples look around. How did he get this food? We got the food. Here it is. What are we going to do with this? And then Jesus says something so remarkable in verse 34. Look at this, please. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus had a greater source of satisfaction, of nourishment, of strength in his life than just the food that he ate. And Jesus explained, the true deepest satisfaction of my life comes from doing the will of he who sent me. Do you notice how humble Jesus is? He didn't even say my father. He says he who sent me. There is a satisfaction in my life that comes from knowing the will of my God and Father and doing it. Not just knowing it. Please notice what he said there in verse 34. He said, my food is to do the will. It's not just knowing. Oh, there's lots of people who know the will of God, but Jesus said, no, I'm talking about doing it. And he goes, that brings into my life such a deep sense of satisfaction. Friends, I read this. And I take a breath, I almost gasp. Because I wonder, do I know the satisfaction? And then I picture myself standing in front of you as I am right now and speaking to you and I think, do you know that satisfaction? Do you know the satisfaction that comes from eating a good meal? There's something wonderful, isn't it? You take a look at me and you say, well, David, I see you enjoy that satisfaction an awful lot. And it is. I mean, it's just, there's just a satisfaction that comes from eating a good meal. Jesus says there's something even greater than that, and it's a satisfaction that comes from knowing and doing the will of God, and as he says in verse 34, I'll talk about it in a moment, and finishing it. Very point-blank question. Do you know that? Now, if you don't, I don't have an ounce of condemnation for you. This isn't somehow to make you feel bad because you don't know the satisfaction. I'm here to open up a brand new world to you. A world you don't know anything about. A world that is more wonderful than you can ever imagine. Because you know what it's like to be satisfied in this world. To satisfy yourself with a good meal, with something to drink, with pleasant conversation. To satisfy yourself with great music, whatever it is. All those things. There is an even greater satisfaction that can be opened up to you to know the will of God and to do it. Now, when I say that, there's something I think that immediately responds in the human heart that says, no way. How great could that possibly be to do the will of God? Doesn't our culture teach us at almost every turn that satisfaction in life comes from doing what I want to do? from following my heart, from charting my direction, 
from the exercise of my will. That's where I'm going to find a satisfied life. Do you realize what an illusion that is? If that were the case, then why are there so many miserable people all around us? Friends, I'm telling you, true satisfaction of life comes from knowing and doing the will of God. And I know immediately you might say, well, I don't know how great that is actually. Reminds me of a story I read this week when I was preparing for the message. One commentator I read gave the story, and it's probably just a preacher's story. It probably never happened, but it's a good story. He said that, that there was a little girl who got from her grandmother for Christmas the gift of a pin cushion. Do people even have pin cushions today? You know what that is. A thing you stick pins in for sewing and such. And isn't that a very grandmotherly gift to give to a little girl? And so the mom said, okay, you got to write your thank you cards. And so the little girl was writing thank you cards to her grandmother. And she says, dear grandmother, thank you for the pin cushion. I've always wanted one, but not very much. <laughs> and isn't that it with the will of God for us? Yes, Lord, I always want your will, but not very much. Look, I understand that battle that goes inside the human heart and the human perception. But I tell you, there's something here for us that if we understood that if we could really believe and unlock in our heart, there would be a satisfaction in our life that surpasses anything you've ever known. To know, to do, to finish the will of God. You see, Jesus did not have his focus primarily on his work, on his need, on the strategy, on the techniques, on the needy souls around him. First and foremost, his focus was on, I need to do the will of God. I think about all the stuff that I need to do in a week. I need to prepare a message for Sunday. And Lord, I pray that it's good and faithful to your word. I need to prepare the Bible college classes that I'm teaching. I need to meet with these people. I need to spend this time with the staff, on and on, whatever it is on my list, all the things I need to do in the week. And then I think, you know what? What I really should be thinking first and foremost is, God, what I need to do is I need to do your will this week. And all those other things should flow out of a sense that this is God's will for me this week. This is what he wants me to do. And how it ennobles and energizes and strengthens everything in my life. Friends, the experience of countless others through the centuries has proved Jesus true in this statement. There is nothing more satisfying than doing the work of God, whatever that particular work is for the individual. Your work for God and the will of God for you as it's worked out in your life may look different than for me and mine than you. This isn't trying to make everybody a pastor or put everybody on the platform or give everybody this or everybody that. No, no, no. It may work out to be very individual in your life. But friends, whatever God's will is for your life, that's where satisfaction is for you. You can be assured of it. Now, notice it. Now, just mention this in verse 34. He also says, and to finish his work. In other words, the idea is not merely to begin the work of God, but Jesus said, no, 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 my will, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Did you see that in verse 34? He intended to finish it. Now let me just make a very brief link here. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, I believe it's verse 30, Jesus is on the cross And he's doing the great work of satisfying God the Father. He's doing the great work of laying down his life as a ransom and a sacrifice for humanity. He's doing the great work of paying the payment for our sins. And you know what he said? At the end of it all, he said, it is finished. 
And it's the same root word as he uses right here. He did finish the work of God. And that's what makes Jesus the most satisfied, the most pleased person in all of the universe. Because he finished the work that God had for him. Jesus continues on, verse 35. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers for eternal life. But both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Okay, get the scene here. We're still on the subplot of Jesus speaking to his disciples. Don't worry, we're going to get back to the Samaritans in just a moment. But the Samaritans are streaming out of the village. They're coming to him. And I think Jesus looks over to where this big group of Samaritans are coming from the village, coming out to the well to speak with Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, look. Don't say the harvest is four months away. It's right now. Look at them. They're coming to us right here, right now. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You see, sometimes we think, that the work of God must operate slowly. And sometimes it does. Sometimes a seed is planted, and it's months or years until it bears fruit. But friends, not always. Sometimes there is a blessed rapidity to God's work, and it seems like the seed is planted, and boom, it's harvest time right now. And Jesus says to his disciples, have the discernment to look for that. Look at it and notice when now is the time for harvest. Now the fields are white for harvest. And he said, look up your eyes and observe this. That's what he says in verse 35. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields where they are already white for harvest. You see, Jesus used this idea of the harvest to communicate a spiritual idea that in the kingdom of God, the disciples themselves would see many people believe on Jesus and enter into the kingdom. And he says this as the Samaritans are making their way over to the well. Don't think it's delayed. It's right now. And friends, this is what I want to just encourage myself with. And I don't mind if you overhear it. Friends, sometimes we are so unbelieving about the harvest that God wants to work in our midst. Sometimes we're so unbelieving, or I'm so unbelieving, and we think, well, it's just work and work and work, and maybe there's a harvest off sometime. Listen, I think Jesus wants us to believe. There's people in our community, in my circle of life, in your circle of life, that he wants to see, and they're ready to come into the harvest right now. Believe it. But believe that God has given you a harvest field in whatever that means for your life, right here, right now, and it's not as far away as you think. Matter of fact, he says this going on into verse 36. He says, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. You see, he's trying to tell him that the work for the harvest will be rewarded. You're gonna receive wages. And of course, he's speaking spiritually. He says, the work of their, the good of their work, I should say, will last forever. That they gather fruit for eternal life, it says in verse 36. And then he says that every worker in the harvest is going to rejoice together in the work. And that's how God wants it to be. Sometimes there's not enough rejoicing together in the work of the harvest. Because I'll tell you how it works very practically in God's kingdom. And this isn't a good thing, it's just a real thing. How it works practically in God's kingdom is oftentimes the ones who sow think that sowing is the ultimate and everybody should be a sower. Man, that's it. You gotta sow the seed. Nothing happens unless you sow the seed. Let's do it. Everybody should be a sower. And if you're not sowing the seed, you should feel bad right now. 
And then there's other people God's called them to cultivate or to water or to weed. And they say, oh, no, that's the job. Cultivating, man, that's the job. Watering, no, that's what everybody should do. Weeding, oh, that's it. And then other people think, no, the harvest. Are you kidding? That's the most important thing. And sometimes people who have different focuses, fo- focuses, is that the plural of focus? Fo- foci, focuses, <laughs> focuses. I'm looking down to a PhD to ask him that. People have different focuses within the body of Christ tend to think sometimes that somebody who doesn't have their focus, well, they're missing the will of God. Are you kidding? God appoints different focus, different points, different things for people to emphasize, and we all rejoice together in the work that's being done. That's how God has it in his kingdom. So check it out now. Verse 39, now we're back, away from the subplot, back to the Samaritans again. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. The woman who had her life laid bare by Jesus, but still knew that he loved her, she ran back to the village. Come, meet the man who told me everything I ever did. You gotta meet this guy. He might be the Messiah. They stream out like a field that's white for harvest. They come to there. Jesus speaks with them. The disciples speak with them. And they're so blown away that they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, would you? Did you notice that right there in verse In verse 40, he stayed there two days. They implored him, Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us two days. Now that might not strike you as strange. Friends, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. And yes, if a Jew was supposed to go through Samaria, he might go through as fast as he possibly could. But for Jesus say, yeah, I'll hang out with you guys for another couple days and teach you all about who I am and what my work is. Don't you see that the way that so many people in Jesus' day, the way that they hated and discriminated discriminated against the Samaritans, Jesus would have none of it. He said, here, I'll stay with you. So I don't know what's more remarkable, that they asked or that Jesus accepted, but they stayed there for two days and he taught them. He poured his life into them. And, And look at what the result was. Verse 41, many more believed because of his own word. In other words, some believed just because of what the woman said, and thank God for that. But when they got to meet Jesus face-to-face in that kind of relationship, many more people believed than just that which believed at the word of the woman who spoke to them. And what did they learn? What did Jesus teach them the two days that he hung out with them? Well, I don't know if they know all that Jesus taught, but he taught at least this. Look at verse 42. This is what they learned from it. We know that this indeed is the Christ the savior of the world. We know two things about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Number one, we know that he is the Messiah. We know that. Number two, and this is what I want to close with that just blows my mind. We know that he is the savior of the world. You know, that title is only used two times in the New Testament, and both of them come from the pen of John. Later on in 1 John chapter 4, he says it again, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine how audacious that is to say that about a human being who walks this earth? Hi, I'd like you to meet Jesus of Nazareth. He's the savior of the world. How strange that is. Could you imagine Moses taking that title to himself? Abraham, King David, Elijah of the Old Testament. No, for any of them to take that title, they would say that's blasphemous. So what I want you to see is that savior of the world is a big title. It only belongs to God. If you say that Jesus is the savior of the world, you're saying that he's God. But not only is it a big title, savior of the world is a broad title. Do you know what it encompasses? The whole world. Savior of the world means savior of the world. Not just savior of Santa Barbara. Though I thank the Lord, he is the savior of Santa Barbara. But it goes far, far beyond that. That Jesus has a heart, a longing, a passion for the whole world. You see it around it, we say it. Uh, We have it written at different places on our building. Something that we want us to be sort of a a statement that we connect to, that we rally around. And it's that simple statement, share the word, reach the world. Why do we have a concern? Why do we send people to Nepal and Thailand and Honduras and Russia and wherever we send them all around? Why? Because we recognize Jesus Christ has a heart for the whole world. He is the savior of the world. Not just one group, not just one language, not just one economic status, not just one nation, but the whole world. And we want to share that heart. So it's a big statement. It's a broad statement. But friends, I would also say that it is a great statement. One that we should be bold to proclaim. I don't see how anybody, um, or let me say this. I just think it's a wonderful thing for us just to simply proclaim Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. I wonder if the culture at large sees him that way. Some think Jesus Christ is, I don't know, the, the judger of the world. Jesus Christ is the one who's annoyed with the whole world. Jesus Christ is the one disappointed in the whole world. And listen, there may be aspects of those things that are true. But don't you think first and foremost what the world needs to hear is Jesus Christ is the savior, the rescuer, the one of the whole world. Friends, let me just add this. How tragic it would be for it to be true that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, but he's not your savior. You you can agree with that statement intellectually. Yes, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Yeah, well, how about your life? Where does that meet you with where you live? It should meet you the same way. You should recognize who Jesus is. You should see that he sees right through your life and he loves you just the same. And he says, one, come, come into my kingdom. Come into my kingdom based on what I did for you on the cross, my finished work, and you'll know what it is to have me to be the savior of your life. Father in heaven, this is my prayer. How sad it would be, Jesus, that you came and you acted and you paid the price to be genuinely the savior of the world that somebody in our midst would miss out on that. So Jesus, we just simply come and say before you as a people, rescue us. Rescue us. Rescue me, Jesus.
And I pray that in particular, you'd reach out to those who hide something deep and dark in their life. Would you assure them, Jesus, of your great love? And no matter how deep, how dark that thing is, the love and the power of Jesus is here to rescue and transform. Lord, we're amazed that you knew everything we ever did and you still love us. We receive you today now as the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.